Hey, welcome. This is Pastor Tyler Whitcomb. I just want to say on behalf of the leadership of Fos Church, we are so glad that you're checking out the Fos Church podcast. At Fos, we believe in the authority of God's word and the ability it has through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of mankind and to mold and shape its readers into the image of Christ. And so we pray that these messages would do just that that you would hear God's word and be changed by it. Lastly, our encouragement is, if you do not belong to a local Bible-believing church, that you would do so, because a podcast will never allow you to serve the purpose that God has called you into belonging to the church. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing today? Good, good. Glad to hear that. Uh, my name is Justin Whitcomb, and I am the discipleship pastor here at Post Church And I just want to welcome you here this morning for worship with us. I'm so glad to see everybody's faces smiling and and ready to go for worship this morning, the teaching of God's word. I'm particularly excited about this passage today because it's going to show a man who is willing to do anything, to pay any cost, to risk any of his own comforts for the will of God. Now, this past week, as I've reflected on the text, I've thought about risks that I've taken in my own life, and one risk came to mind in particular. Now, several years ago, I met a girl, right, this beautiful girl, and I was very interested in pursuing her, and so I asked her for a phone number one night after church, uh, a church event we were at, and uh, she gave it to me. So first risk was accomplished, but the bigger risk was coming ahead. And so we set up a time to hang out. Well, this girl worked at a coffee shop, so most of her evenings were taken up, and so we couldn't hang out outside of coffee shop hours. So I began to go to visit her at the coffee shop. Now, the very first time I went to the coffee shop to visit her, uh, we had an awesome time, because at that particular time, there wasn't a lot of people coming in, and so we had the opportunity to get to know each other pretty well that night, and we sat there for hours and talked, uh, you know, occasionally she had to make a coffee for somebody, but... We got to to really spend some time together, and it was really a wonderful night. Well, she cleans up the coffee shop, closes up, locks up, and I walk her to her car. Now, at this point, my hands are getting sweaty and kind of shaky, and my heart's pounding because I know what I've determined in my mind I'm going to do. I am going to go in for a kiss. And so as we're standing there, I'm holding my keys. She's holding her keys. We're both kind of just standing there, and I'm like, I'm going in. So I go in, I I, I lean in to kiss her, and she physically backs up. She starts leaning backwards. But in my mind, I've already determined I'm going. And so I'm either going to hit the ground or something else is good. I'm going to get this kiss. So if I hit the concrete, so be it. I'll at least know my answer that she didn't really like me all that much. So either way, I'm going to, she either likes me or she doesn't. I'm going to know in this moment. Now, thankfully, she broke my fall with a kiss. And, and thankfully, I didn't hit the concrete. With that being said, it ended up working out well for me. The, the reward was worth it because that beautiful girl who worked at the coffee shop is now my wife, and uh, we are coming on five years of marriage and welcoming our second child into the world. And, and it's, you know, thank you, thank you. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. All of us in here, though, in our lives, make, take these kind of risks at times. We, we get faced with decisions we have to make where there's a risk and a reward that we have to weigh out, right? We're faced with 
Sometimes pursuing a love interest. And sometimes it's taking a new step into a new career. Sometimes it's picking the right school for our children. Are they going to go to public school or private school? Or, or are they going to be homeschooled? And we're all faced, in whatever, whatever walk of life we're in, we're all faced with these decisions at times where there's a perceived risk and a perceived reward. And, and that's the thing. The decision to follow God at times is the same exact thing. There is a cost. As Edric Bonhoeffer would say, there is a cost for discipleship. There is a cost in following God. You know, it could cost our resources. It could cost our time. It could cost our reputation with people we work with or, other, or in our family. You know, some of our family members may think, oh, this guy's a Jesus freak, and, and they may distance themselves. The decisions we make for God very oftentimes come at a great cost and a great risk. But at the end of the day, we have to make the decision. Am I going to make the easy, self-serving choice? Or am I going to make the costly, God-honoring choice? And today's text is going to give us two reasons why the cost is never too great to follow God. It's going to give us two reasons why the cost is never too great to follow God. Well, looking back at last week's passage, just to give a quick recap of that, we see that ultimately the, the tensions between David and Saul are beginning to rise and boil up, right? Saul is determined in his heart that I don't care what God has to say, David is my enemy. And so David or Saul devises a plan to kill David in chapter 19. But we see through chapter 19, ultimately, that the first time he tries to kill him, that Jonathan, Saul's son, intervenes and he speaks about David's good character, his devotion to God. And he points to the fact that, do you really have a reason to kill David? And so Saul gives Jonathan his word that he's going to not kill David. Based on this promise, David returns back into Saul's presence, only to find himself a, a target once again. Now, the second time, uh, as Saul's con heart continues to harden, the second time he attempts to take David's life, uh, someone else intervenes. And that would be Saul's daughter, who David is married to, Michal. And so she intervenes and protects David, and it allows him to get out of there alive. He's able to escape, and he is able to retreat out of the city to the prophet Samuel and the city of Ramah. Despite his ability to retreat, despite the grace and opportunity that God gave him to get away from Saul and his attempts to kill him, we ultimately see that Saul is still able to track down David, and he makes his way toward the city of Ramah. Now, what ends up happening is that there's a, at this third attempt now, a supernatural intervention takes place. We're told in the text that as Saul and his men were coming to Ramah, that they began to prophesy. Now, being the New Testament church, we have an idea of prophecy. But when we look back to the Old Testament here, what we can understand, many commentators would note that this prophesying would be like a divine trance. And so as these men are prophesying, they're literally stopped from being able to pursue David. And so in God's grace, David is, allowed to, is able to escape from Saul's third attack. Now, you'd think after three unsuccessful attempts where we see David, or John, 
Saul's own family intervening to prevent Saul from doing what he wants to do. Saul, remember, is trying to kill David because he wants his line to stay on the throne. But it's Saul's own line that's keeping him from doing it, from killing David. And in the end, God himself intervenes and shows that his purposes and plans are here to stay. And so he subverts him one more time. He subverted three times. But Saul's heart at this point is so hardened. It's so set on self-serving and self-fulfilling that he doesn't care about the will of God at all anymore. His heart is so hardened that it doesn't matter that he's been stopped three times. He's going to keep coming after David. And so David is, is recognizing that this is a, the, the tempo of things at this point. And so our text today begins by giving us an account of David returning. But he doesn't return in the same way he did in chapter 19 into the presence of Saul. He returns in hiding. And, and at this point, he needs to reach out to his one and only ally at this point, Saul's son, Jonathan, the one person who has the ability to help him uh, evade Saul's constant attack against him. And so we see that David comes to Jonathan and presents his concerns. He tells David, or he tells Jonathan, listen, your, your dad wants to kill me. My life is not safe. I cannot return back into his presence. Now, Jonathan gives him a little bit of a rebuttal. He says, it, it, that can't be true. Anything that my, my father plans, he tells me. And that speaks to the high relationship that Jonathan does have with his dad. And because of that relationship, Jonathan seeks to believe his father. There's this part in him that wants to believe that there's still some type of holiness in Saul that he would be willing to live for the purposes of God. However, his heart is completely hardened at this point. So, at the, but David, or Jonathan, despite the fact that he believes Saul is not going to do that, in his love for David, for his brother, he says, I will do what you want me to do. How can we prove these words to be true? And so what we see is that they devise a test for Saul. David tells Jonathan, tell your dad that I, you, you let me go to Bethlehem for the annual sacrifice to be with my family. If he gets upset, or if he doesn't get upset, we see that I was wrong. If he does get upset, well, I was right. And so they devise this test to come up. And so they make a covenant between one another that no matter what happens, that they will deal kindly with one another. And they make that covenant on the basis of God, right? They, they put God in between them as the foundation to show, that, show the intentions of each other to one another. And so they also then devise, well, if, you know, what we're doing right now is, is kind of risky, we need a system of communication. And so that system required Jonathan to fire three arrows out into a, the field where David was hiding. If he fired them one way or fired them another, would give the answer to David while he hid as to whether or not what he believed was true. And so that brings us to our passage today. Look back with me at verse 24. It says, So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. David's place was empty. Yet Saul didn't say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, 
Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked, me, asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brother. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And so our first reason why the cost to follow God is never too much is this. While the cost to live in obedience will be great, God will provide you the means to do so. While the cost to live in obedience will be great, God will provide you the means to do so. And so the plan begins, right? It gets set into motion. Saul notices that David's missing. He is missed, not for good reasons, but he's suspicious. Now, he knows that David is a man of good character. David's character speaks for himself. I mean, even Jonathan in the previous chapter is attesting that, why would you kill such a holy man who loves God and follows his will? So in, in Saul's heart, as, 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 as perverted it has to be, as it had become at that point, he recognizes that David is a man after God's own heart. So this, he, he, he determines that first day he must be unclean. He wouldn't be here because he's, he's unclean and he's going through the ceremonial uh, uh, purification to come back to the, the celebration table. But the second day comes and now he's super suspicious that, that, that David's still not there. David should be back. And so the, what, what Saul says to, to Jonathan gives us a, a hint to the tone in which he was interacting with his son. He uses the term, the son of Jesse. Now, if you recall, David is married to Saul's daughter, Michal. He is, by law, Saul's son. But he uses that term, son of Jesse, as a derogatory term to make a point that he is not happy. And so that gives us some context here, right? To understand what Jonathan is about to do. Jonathan is standing in this public celebration where his father is at the head of it all. His father, the king. Not only that, we can see that Jonathan is going to be picking up on the fact that Saul's anger is flaring up. He's getting upset. He, he's about to lose his self-control as he's done before. He, he very much lacks self-control. And so needless to say, the stakes are high for Jonathan in this plan. However, Jonathan continues forward. He sees the stakes are high. And he tells his father that as David's superior, he let him go. Being the, the son of the king, he was one of the generals and he was the superior to David. And so he says, as a superior, I allowed him to return back to his family for the celebration. Now, Saul's anger boils over and he explodes. And he begins to hurl insults at his own flesh and blood, at his son that he, as we saw previously, Jonathan acknowledging that they had such a great relationship. 
In this moment, the hardness and the sinfulness of Saul's heart leads him to sin against his own flesh and blood. And so he uses this disgraceful language in front of others. And then he actually attempts to take Jonathan's life in the very same way that he tried to take David's life in chapter 19, by hurling a spear. Now, I don't know if you can picture this, but if we look, we think back about how big Saul is. Saul's a big man. And for him to wield a spear and, and throw it at you would mean that if you, if you evaded that, it was by the grace of God. And so by God's grace, Jonathan evades this attempt at his own life now. And so while Jonathan had hoped that David's suspicions were wrong, that they weren't true, he still knew going into it that there was going to be a great risk and a great cost to continue with this plan in order that he would honor his friend, but ultimately honor God in his actions. He saw what was right and he took the necessary steps of obedience despite the great risk. You know, when it comes to risk, it's, it's only natural for us to consider the reward, right? Because the actions we do, we ultimately don't want to waste. We want to see what can benefit us the most. If I'm picking a new job, oftentimes I'm not picking a job that pays less money, right? I, I'm looking at the risk and reward. Even on a smaller scale, if I go to a, a coffee shop and I'm getting a latte and I decide, you know what, I'm going to try a new flavor like lavender, which is awful, I'm going to be honest. But I go, to a, I go to a coffee shop and I try a new flavor in my latte. I am taking somewhat of a risk because I may end up, lattes are expensive. I may end up wasting six bucks on a disgusting drink, but the reward could be that this could be the best drink I've ever had, right? I, I started thinking about other areas, again, where we take risks and, and, and have to perceive the reward. And so I started looking at different careers that are available to us in 2023 across the globe. Right? And I came across some of the most truly horrifying jobs, most terrifying jobs that I would never do in a million years as I was researching. And one of them I came across is underwater welding. Man, that sounds, you know, sounds very interesting. But as I read about underwater welding, I came across the potential risk. One of those is encountering explosions, decompression sickness, and arterial gas embolisms. Now, I've never had an arterial gas embolism, but I'm going to take a bet and say I don't want to experience that. I don't have to experience it to know it sounds like a really bad thing, and I don't want that. And so you may be wondering, just like I was, why would anyone want to take such a risk just for their occupation? This is the understood reward for a job like that. The upper salary range for these welders is $300,000. By, it's a, my wife's looking at me like, you need to quit the ministry and uh, become an underwater welder. Take that risk, you know. Now, we only take chances, though. That's the thing is when we perceive that the, the reward, the risk is worth the reward, right? And by all stretches of the imagination, when we bring ourselves back into this story, what reward did Jonathan really have to gain? Put yourself in his shoes, right? You're sitting there, You're standing in front of your father, again, the king, the most powerful man in all of the nation, who has a terrible temper, as you've seen time and time again. And you know you're about to test his patience. Not only that, you're also aiding the one person, David, who's going to prevent you from being king. To Saul's point, the only thing that's standing between you being king is David. And yet, 
he aids him. And so what did he have to gain? What would you have to gain in a situation like that? All of the risk and no reward. Well, let's look back at verse 32, what Jonathan says to his father. It says that Jonathan said, answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? While it was Saul's prerogative to do only what was best for himself, Jonathan had a different prerogative, right? We can see that in there because Jonathan saw what was right in the eyes of God. He knew that his calling in life was to help establish the purposes of God, to live for his will. And God gave him the faith to take that step. When everything was opposed against him, when all men were against him in that moment, where he was by himself standing in front of the king, aiding the king's enemy, he took a, faith of, take a step of faithful obedience. But Jonathan's faith, Jonathan's faith was rooted in the faithfulness of his God to deliver. You know, he knew the stories of old. He knew the exodus. He knew that God would deliver. He knew that God would show what for him in one way or another. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're facing a challenge or challenges that present, on one hand, the easy self-serving route. On the other hand, the costly God-honoring route, right? And so when we become followers of God, our affections change. The things that we desire change when God captivates our heart. Because it can be so compelling in our flesh when it's failing and it's weak to take the path of least resistance, to take the path of comfort, to take the easy path, the self-serving and comforting path. But as our affections change, as we follow God, we can't help but be obedient like Jonathan because our hearts no longer belong to ourselves. We don't put faith in ourselves like Saul. We don't seek our purposes and serve our own interests, but we root our faith in Christ and seek to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Deciding to honor God with our actions becomes our prerogative because no matter the outcome, no matter what's perceived, whether it's good or bad, we know that we have a faith similar to Jonathan's, that our God in the end will come through for us in one way or another. Because that's the thing. Our faith as believers is rooted in more sure realities than Jonathan's was. We have seen the risen Christ. We as sinners who have lost everything, who deserve punishment, have seen Christ go to the cross on the behalf of sinners while we were his enemies and die and give us everything. How much more fully can we, these are the testimonies that scripture gives us to rest in the sure promises of God that he comes through for his children when they, even when they, take the costly choice to follow in obedience. If you're doubting your ability this morning to make that costly decision at times, to be sacrificial in your obedience, I want you to stop looking inward and start looking upward because that's where clarity and strength come from. Continue along with me in verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. He said to this boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan had called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? 
And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Following this exchange between Jonathan and Saul, Jonathan knows in his heart that I must warn David. We've made this covenant and he's correct. Saul is coming for his life still. And Saul is determined by all stretch of the imagination to keep his line on the throne and to eliminate David as a possible threat. He wants to see the prophetic word of God to be proven to be false. And so he's doing everything he can. So Jonathan takes this step of costly potential obedience. He takes a step of faith at this time. So they continue the execution of this plan and he goes out to the field where David is hiding to warn him. So Jonathan fires three arrows out into the field and he sends his boy out to go get them. And he says, you got to go further. They went beyond you. And this is the sign. This is the verification that what David believed is the reality between the two friends. That's that Jonathan's dad, the king, is seeking to kill his friend, the one who the promises of God were made to. And so the text indicates that the only two people that knew what was transpiring in that field were David and Jonathan. Even the little boy had no idea of what was happening. So they knew the risk that was involved, evidenced by the fact that they were the only two that knew. They were the only two that had an idea of this plan. Because it's one thing to challenge the motives of the king. It's another thing to show love to his enemy. David barely, or Jonathan barely escaped with his life when he, when he challenged Saul's intentions. He would have had a sure grave if he would have been known to be aiding Saul's enemy, to show him love. He knew that this was costly, right? When the right decision seems impossible to make, when your flesh begins to fail and decisions for self-preservation and comfort become the instinct and temptation, humble yourself to the will of God, and he will establish your steps of obedience. The text continues to say in verse 40, and Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and, and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And so our second reason and second main point, what? Uh, for why the cost of to follow God is never too much is this, that what we receive is far greater than anything we could ever lose. What we receive is far greater than what we could ever lose. What the text shows us is that there's some profound worldly loss taking place here. <laughs> While Jonathan and David's friendship would continue on in spirit, because of Saul's hatred though, it could not continue on in flesh. David must flee. In fact, after this incident, David and Jonathan only see each other one more time. Maybe you can sit here and say, well, I, I relate to loss like this. I relate to pain, the cost. You know, sometimes we, we lose our friends and I know that I can relate to this. Uh, one of my best friends in my early 20s um, told me 
that he was moving across the state one day. It was absolutely devastating for me because he had been a daily encouragement for me to follow God and desire the things that he desired, to love the things that he loved and to hate the things that he hated. It was a true brotherhood. It was a true friendship. We would walk through our neighborhoods during the summer and talk about the goodness of God in our lives. And and his friendship to me was an encouragement. In fact, it was a grace from God to help keep my eyes on him. And so when he told me that he was leaving, it, it broke my heart. And even though we're Facebook friends today, our our friendship has still never been the same 10 years later. You know, I think this is seeing David and Jonathan's reaction to this reality shows us that, uh, you know, the reality that these friends are being faced with, that godly friendships are something to treasure and to value, right? Um, These godly friendships point us to Jesus, to be more godly, to be like Christ. That's why the relationships we have here in the church are so important. Why these friendships that we build, these bonds that we have with one another, why we seek to gather and and spend life together is because these relationships point us to Christ. They instill godliness in us, especially when we pursue them intentionally. And so at this point, Jonathan had not only lost the relationship he had with his Father, he lost his kingship that was coming for him, and now he's lost his most dear and godly friend. It appears that Jonathan has lost everything good in his life at this point. And while that seems to be the case, we can know that it couldn't be anything further from the truth. Verse 42 says this, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Through immense sadness and loss, Jonathan sees the opportunity for peace. What's the reason for this peace? The reason for this piece is that Jonathan sees the eternal reward following, that comes with following the will of God obediently. While he knows that this is the, the end of their physical relationship here on earth as they knew it, that God would be the eternal rock between them forever. Jonathan had faith that God is eternally faithful to those that belong to him. He knows that the Lord will be between them forever. When we have faith rooted in something so solid, we can live lives of radical obedience. Radical. It's a faith that shows us that the temporal becomes meaningless unless it serves the purposes of God. Because if it builds our own kingdoms, our kingdoms are going to crumble, but God's kingdom will be on forever. This frees us to live in joy in this moment. It frees us from the the chains that would seek to bind us, that the world would seek to hold us down with, the concerns of the world that we put so much stock into. It removes that because it's rooted in the promises of Romans 8.28, that God is working all things to the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. Jonathan knew that he had been called to live in such a way 
And so he knew that the eternal reward to gain would allow him to live in sacrificial obedience. There was nothing you could take from Jonathan. You couldn't take his, 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 French, his relationship with his dad. You couldn't take his kingship. You couldn't take his friendship with David. Nothing in this world could be lost that would prevent him from living sacrificially in obedience to God. Oh, what, a, what something to inspire to live by to live in such a way that the things of this world, when we look at them and we know that they are going to fade away, that one day God will make all things new and that we have an eternal promise and eternal securities that give us the ability to live radically now and not hold on tight-fisted to the things of this world. When we have an eternal view of our lives, we can live sacrificially with the temporal and so if you believe that promise to be true this morning, that if you were to take radical steps of obedience to God's word, and even if it came with a great cost, that it would all be worth it, then you have been, then you have been freed to live a life full of joy and full of immense joy because your treasure is stored in heaven and not in the things of this world, not in the comforts that are fleeting. Challenge yourself this week. Ask yourself, where am I failing to believe this? What areas of my life are self-preserving, self-serving, self-comforting? And ask yourself, what is God calling me to do, even if it comes with a great cost and sacrifice? If you're sitting here today, and this is the life you want to live, a life full of purpose, the purposes of God and full of joy, to be removed from the chains of this world, the worries of what tomorrow will bring and what it won't. And this isn't the life you have now. Don't leave without making that decision today to take that life because it's being offered to you freely. It starts with one step, one step of faith, one declaration, a profession from your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. You will be welcomed into a life full of joy and freedom to live in obedience to God. You made that profession today, you will be saved. You just have to take that first step of obedience. Let's pray.